Good morning, everyone. Hope everybody is celebrating and experiencing an inspirational and joyous Hanukkah with themselves and their family. This week's Parsha is Parsha's Miketz, and we will be discussing Hanukkah as well as the Parsha. The title for today's Shi'or is Comprehending Our Governments and Our Role. Now, this is not a Shi'or on politics. Don't worry. This is a sheer understanding the correlation between us as a Jewish nation and the countries in which we live, including also even today, the government in the land of Israel, which is not per se a Torah-based government. So we need to understand our role in the world, how the Gaim perceive us and how we look to be perceived. And obviously all of this leads to the questions of today's time in this country, in the United States of America, and unfolding situations in many countries around the world related to anti-Semitism, the state of Israel in general. So all of that is at play in today's conversation. So I'd like to begin not with a Hanukkah question, but with a Parsha question. There's a pretty astonishing fact that people don't seem to make a big deal out of when it comes to the story of Yosef as viceroy in Egypt. So I wanna give a little bit of background and then we will be discussing a question about Yosef's rulership in the land of Egypt. As we know, in the end of last week's parsha, Yosef correctly interprets the dream of the butler and the baker, predicting and prognosticating that the butler will be returned to his post and the baker will be hung for his crimes. And that's indeed what happens. In this week's parsha, Paro has a dream involving seven fat cows, healthy cows, well, you know, um, healed cows, and seven uh, lean and hungry and starving cows plus seven stalks of wheat that are robust and full, and then another seven stalks of wheat that are weather beaten and look like they are dying, essentially. And Yosef is asked to interpret Paro's dreams because the butler brings Yosef into the conversation, remarking to Paro, I remember the sins that I sinned to Paro in the past, and two years ago, this Hebrew lad in jail correctly interpreted our dreams, and it's worth giving this boy a shot. And so Paro does invite Yosef into the discussion, asks for his interpretation, and Yosef so impresses both Paro and his servants that everybody not only agrees with the brilliance of his interpretation, but with his suggestion of what to do about impending famine and starvation and they are so enthused about his suggestion to appoint people to gather grain during the seven years of plenty that he immediately is appointed by Pyro as second in command of the entire country of Egypt. It's just an amazing story as we know. Now, in his commanding Egypt, Yosef does indeed gather grain and does provide for the entire people as the famine begins to affect the population of Egypt and the people continue to come to Yosef for food. So this is as per Rashi, if you give me one moment, I'll just quote to you because it's worth knowing in case uh, anybody asks you where it says it. One second. So it's chapter 41. Sentence 55, okay, 4155. The Torah says in sentence 55 that the entire land of Egypt was starving and the people screamed to Pyro for bread. And Pyro said to the entire Egypt, go to Yosef, whatever Yosef tells you to do. So says Rashi, what's really the subtext of this conversation that whatever Yosef tells you to do is what you should do? Yosef told the Egyptian people to circumcise themselves. Do a circumcision. That's Rashi. And so they come to power, they say, you know, 
he told us to, to, to become circumcised. And so Pyro says to them, why didn't you save food during the years of plenty? That's all Yosef did. And that's what he told us. He said there was a famine coming. Everybody should stack up, save food. To which the people replied, we did. We did. We did store food and we did try to preserve enough for us to eat. We gathered so much, but it all rotted. It became rotten. And that's why we don't have food. So this is what Pyro says today. He says, if that's the case, then you really have to do whatever Yosef tells you to do. He's the one who decreed on the grain and it became rotten. What if he decrees upon us that we should die? So you better listen to him. That's what Pyro says, according to Rashi. Now, the sentence says that Pyro says, whatever he tells you to do, to do. Now, that seems quite extreme. Whatever Yosef says to do, that's what you do. But apparently the back story is because the people had tried to follow Yosef's advice of gathering grain and it all rotted. And Pyro said, you see, it must be that he's the one who decreed that the grain should rot. And therefore, you're going to have to listen to him and do whatever he says. I have a, just a, a simple question. Yosef has to provide them for, with food no matter what, right? Why is Yosef telling them to circumcise themselves? For what reason? He needs like a sign of loyalty. If, if a, he needs a sign of loyalty, so then, you know, come up with something that applies to women also, right? You know, maybe everybody should have to cut their hands in old style American Indian fashion, you know, cut their hands and make a, a blood brother pack. What is this concept that Yosef is telling the entire Egyptian nation to become circumcised? It seems really crazy. I don't know another way to say it. There's no obligation in the Noahide laws for non-Jews to have circumcision. We have no missionizing concept in Judaism that says, hey, look, you know, uh, your mission in the world is to make sure that all the Gentiles have circumcision. What is Yosef doing? How, how does it make any sense at all? He, he's just trying to make them suffer? Like, what's the point? And not only that, they go along with it. They actually do that. Power says whatever he says to do is what you should do. So what's the message that the Torah is teaching us about the leadership of Yosef, about this kind of ruling, and how can we make any sense out of this particular action requiring the, the Egyptians to all have a circumcision? That's the question on the, on the Parsha uh, of Niketz that I want to deal with, but now I want to go into a couple of other questions from last week's Parsha, from the end of last week's Parsha, that are really the prelude to Yosef's being appointed the Viceroy and his interpreting of Paro's dream. So there's two questions that I would like to ask. <coughs> when Yosef has his interaction and his test with the wife of Potiphar, the Torah tells us that he refused. And then the Torah explains to us after that, that even after his refusal, she's still pursuing him. And that one day Yosef does decide to succumb, but in the end he doesn't and he runs out from the house and he leaves his garment with her. She actually grabs his garment and, and he runs out of the house and eventually Yosef's master Potiphar comes home and he realizes what happened. And his wife actually says very specifically and graphically um, false accusations, you know, about uh, what he did. So anyways, the bottom line is that Yosef is put into jail based on Potiphar's wife's accusations. Okay, the next chapter in the Torah, before it introduces the dreams of the butler and the baker in jail, it says, it says it was after these things. And I spoke about this on Friday, but I, I, I think it's very important to mention here, especially what we're talking about in the context today. It says, after these things, meaning after the story with Potiphar, what happens is that the butler and the baker, they sin against Paro. One leaves a stone in uh, the bread. That's the baker's deficiency. That's his misdeed. And the butler lets a fly into Paro's cup and he serves him the cup of wine, that's his deficiency. And so those are the two sins. And because of that, 
Yosef is actually um, put in charge of these two officers, the power of the butler and the baker in jail, and that's when they have their dreams, etc. Now, the Chachamim tell us that whenever the Torah says achar, it means a cause and effect, and usually it's soon after, that after the story of Yosef unfolded this saga and this entire, you know, interesting episode with the butler and the baker and what they did wrong. After Yosef came the dreams of the butler and the baker. And so the rabbis explained the reason for that is because Potiphar's wife managed to make Yosef's so alleged betrayal into a major scandal. And people were talking about it and talking about it and talking about it. And Hashem said, let's change the conversation from Yosef and his scandalous deed with Potiphar's wife, which we know he didn't do, but let's, uh, let's, you know, let's change the story. Let's have a new, fresh news cycle. And therefore, the scandal of the butler and the baker unfolded. And that would also lead to Yosef's being freed from jail. As we know, he correctly interprets the butler's dream. And that's his springboard into the court of Pyro and eventually to becoming, into becoming the viceroy of Egypt. Okay, so here's my question. It seems that Yosef is in jail for 12 years. And when Yosef is finally freed from jail, that's of two years, as our Torah introduces in our parsha. Miketz means at the end, at the end of two years, Yosef then becomes the viceroy because he correctly interprets Pyro's dream. But it seems that the scandal happened 10 years before that. So at the beginning of this 12-year period, Yosef is being scandalized and there's terrible rumors that are casting aspersions on his character going about him swirling about. And then nine years later, the butler and the baker seem to go into jail for their misdeeds and um, their being uh, disrespectful to Pyro in these ways. So for nine years, the Egyptian people are talking about Yosef and his mistress, you know, the, the wife of Potiphar. It seems to be an incredibly gripping story. I believe that would even outshine the O.J. Simpson uh, scandal. I don't think people were talking about it for nine years, right? Maybe for a good few years. Okay, yeah, we recall it every now and then. But for nine years, Hashem wants to distract people from that conversation. And now uh, we're going to mention the butler and the baker. It just seems a very difficult thing. Okay, so that's question number one on last week's parsha. Question number two is a very, very famous question, and it and it relates to the idea that when Yosef correctly interprets the butler's dream, he says to the butler, listen, and when you go to Paro, please tell him that, uh, you know, there's this, pardon me for saying it, but I'm going to say it anyways, there's this Hebrew Jew boy in, 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 uh, in jail, and he's been falsely accused and improperly incarcerated. Make sure you get him out of jail. You know, that's what the message from Yosef to Pyro is supposed to be. And the butler doesn't actually remember until finally it's time to interpret Pyro's dreams two years later. So the rabbis tell us, Rashi brings this, that because Yosef put his trust in the butler, that's why Yosef is required to be in jail an extra two years. That's what Rashi says, because Yosef put his trust in the butler, he needs to be in jail an extra two years. So most people understand that Yosef was supposed to rely on Hashem, and he didn't. He asked the butler for help, and therefore Yosef is being punished that he needs to be in jail an extra two years. Now, I'm sure I'm not the only one that has heard the famous story of the man who was living uh, in a home and the town was about to be flooded. And people are warning everybody to get out of the home, get out of the area, go to higher ground. And the man says, God will save me. And then the water starts coming. And pretty soon the boats are passing by this person's house. And they're saying, come, come into the boat. We'll save you. We'll save you. And the man says, God will save me. And then the flood waters rise higher and higher. And now he's at the top of his house. And the boats are still coming by. And now it's a helicopter that comes and says, We'll, 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 you know, we'll yank you out. We'll fly you out of here. Come. 
He says, no, God will save me. And of course, eventually the man dies and he goes up to heaven and in heaven, you know, he, God asks him like, you know, why didn't you take all these offers of help to be saved? And the man says, I thought you would save me. And God says, I first sent you the warning before the flood. Then I sent you the boat. And then I sent you the helicopter. What were you waiting for? Right. That's everybody knows that famous parable. Right. God is very often saving us through human means that are right in front of us. Right. So what did Yosef do wrong? Who wouldn't ask the butler to go to Pyron, mention the plight of an innocently accused, you know, a falsely accused innocent person in jail? Who wouldn't do that? In, in, in modern lingo, that's called protexia. That's what everybody thinks of it and everybody knows that's the way things get done. And that is Hashem sending help. So what's wrong with Yosef asking the butler for help? Everybody agree with that question? Okay, so the three questions are, why is Yosef asking the Egyptian people to circumcise? What is this scandal that happens with Yosef and the wife of Potiphar that it lasts for such a long time, not to mention the fact that, uh, you know, at the end of the day, that kind of behavior was not uncommon in Egypt. It shouldn't have been so shocking. The Torah tells us that Egypt is literally a paragon of a decadent society based on immorality and licentiousness. So people were so astonished. I mean, you know, this is in, in Hebrew, we say, you know, this is like every day, you know, stories. Everybody knows these things go on. So why is this such a scandal in Egypt? And then finally, what's wrong with Yosef asking the butler to mention him to Pyro? Isn't that the logical thing to do? Isn't that the boat and the helicopter saving a person from their plight? What's wrong with what Yosef is doing? So I would like to suggest a, a very important beginning a, um, you know, to this idea, which really is found in the words of the rabbis, because unfortunately, I think many people, in my humble opinion, approach this question incorrectly because they haven't looked at the medrash inside that Rashi is quoting. Because Rashi actually brings a sentence that talks about trusting Hashem and not arrogant people. It's a sentence from Psalms. It says, Ashrei hagever asher sam Hashem niftacho. Praised is the person who puts his trust in Hashem, and he does not turn towards arrogant people. That's what the sentence says. And if you look in the Medrash, the Medrash says, Praise is the person who puts his trust in Hashem. It's as if you have a dictionary and you said, oh, okay, well, we have a dictionary of people here. Let me look up. Okay, who's a paragon of trusting in Hashem? You open the page, trusting in Hashem. There's a picture of Yosef. It says Yosef underneath it. That's the person that trusts Hashem. That's what the Medrash says. On this very, very same comment of Rashi. Who is praiseworthy? Who is the person that trusts in Hashem? It's Yosef. But then the Medrash continues. The low funnel we have even he doesn't turn towards the arrogant, the arrogant person is the Syramashkin. So the Medr seems to be speaking an oxymoron, an inherent contradiction. On the one hand, the Medr is saying Yosef is praised because he trusts in Hashem. And that person doesn't turn to the arrogant, but Yosef did turn to the Syramashkin. So how do we explain that conundrum? Which one is it? Does Yosef trust in Hashem or does Yosef not trust in Hashem? And you know what the answer is? Yosef trusts in Hashem 100%. Yosef is the person in our parable saying, yeah, I'll take that boat ride. Yeah, 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 yeah. Hold the ladder steady. I want to get up the helicopter. Yosef is that person. There's only one problem. That in our parable, the person who's the captain of the boat or the pilot of a helicopter is not an arrogant person. He's not an arrogant son of a gun like the butler is. And when a person who trusts in Hashem asks an arrogant person for help, even though the person asking for help knows that the buckler, the pilot, the captain are messengers of Hashem, but the arrogant person does not know that he's a messenger from Hashem. He thinks, hey, this guy who keeps talking about God needs me. I must be God. I'm not going to mention the in-law joke, you know, of we rely on you know, we have Bitachon, we rely on Hashem. Everybody knows that one, right? Okay. But the arrogant person thinks, yeah, I am Hashem. I am God. That's why he's turning to me for help. 
Yosef is not being punished, but unfortunately Yosef is being subjected to a lesson that's being taught the butler. Oh yeah, Mr. Butler, you think that you're the one that's gonna save Yosef through your protexia, that you're gonna to go to Paro, and then you're gonna claim credit for the release of Yosef, and then you're going to hold it over Yosef's head, that you're the one that gets him out of jail, and then you're gonna to try to puppeteer through Yosef whatever you want because Yosef owes you and because Yosef needed you. You're gonna to try to remember Yosef every day and it's not gonna work. There's a Midrash brought in the man Lois that says that the butler tied a knot every day to remind himself to tell Paro about Yosef and every day an angel came and undid the knot and every day the butler forgot him for two years. That's what the Midrash says because it was a lesson to the butler. And so even though Yosef suffers the consequences of that, it's not a punishment to Yosef. Rashi does not call it a punishment. Rashi says it became necessary for Yosef to be in jail an extra two years. And by the way, righteous people are always subject to the consequences in their own life that their generation needs to learn. That's always the case with righteous people. It's not a punishment to them, but they become a necessary cog in the lessons that Hashem is teaching the people around them. Okay, but why is the story so fundamental? That, that, that's a very interesting point about Yosef's trust and the Sahar Mashkim, but why is that so central to the theme of what's happening in Egypt? And the answer is because a major fundamental lesson that the Torah is telling us here is about the power structure of secular governments versus what the Torah wants Jewish people to teach the people around them about government, about rulership, about providing for others. This is exactly the lesson that the Torah is trying to teach us here. And the Torah is presenting us with a template of the role of a Jewish person, of an Ivri who's on the other side of the world, in the secular world, and specifically in the royal courts and in the seats of governmental power. That's exactly what's being taught to us here. So now I suggest to you the real scandal with Yosef and the wife of Potiphar. My brother Abitzchak pointed out to me a beautiful sentence. It says, after Yosef ran out of the house and the wife of Potiphar had his garment, he says, the Torah says he left his garment in her hand and he ran outside. And then the Torah says, Vatanach bigdo She put his garment next to her until the, his master, until Yosef's master came home. My brother asked me, my brother asked me, what is the Torah teaching us about that? We know she has the garment. Why is the Torah saying she put it next to her? What is the Torah saying? And I suggested to him, here's what the Torah is saying. She's in bed and she lays out Yosef's garment right next to her. Because in the Torah, next to her means to lie next to her in a bed. That's what it means in earlier sentences. And she just waits there until her husband comes home. You can imagine the scene. He walks into his bedroom. He sees his wife there with his trusted servant's coat lying right next to him. It's not about the immorality. The only thing that the master, Potiphar, withheld from Yosef was his wife. That's what the Torah tells us. And she's sending her husband a message, Yosef is taking me over too. He's ousting you as the master of the household. Because, you know, that's what those Hebrews do. They take over. They take control. They will be in charge. Sure, they're really successful, they're really smart, they know how to make everything work, they know how to make us tons and tons of money, but then they take over everything. And that's what she wants the master to see when he walks in his bedroom door. The scandal that lasts for nine years is not the immorality of the servant with the wife of the master of the household, it's the scandal of power. It is the power grabbing that captures the attention of the Egyptian people because that is their system of power. The one that has the power, the one that has the money wins. It's called the golden rule, right? The man with the gold rules. That's the concept of secular government and authoritarianism 
that is the concept of what works as a power structure in most governments of the world. That's the lesson that the Torah is telling us is that she had everybody thinking about Yosef as a threat to power, even though all that really happens with Yosef is that whenever he's put in a position of power, he only manages it. He makes everything work tremendously well. He never takes any credit. He says everything is Hashem's and he never takes anything for himself. Even in the moment when he absolutely was tempted and it's only normal that the man would give in to the temptation of the woman that's pursuing him and pursuing him endlessly. And that's the only thing that his master withheld from him and he had total trust of him. The normal thing to do would be to give in. But Yosef says, absolutely not. It's not for me. I'm only here to facilitate the success of the Tsar HaTabachim Potiphar. And he does not give in. And even though she tries to convince her husband that is what happened, he really knows the truth. I'm not going to get more into that. And he has to save face. So he puts Yosef in jail. And even in jail, Yosef is put in charge. And finally, Yosef needs power. And again, he's put in charge <coughs> because the Torah is describing to us what a true Jew does when he's given power. What a true Jew does when he's given control, money, and power is seek to make everyone around him successful. Not also, not listen, I become wealthy, you become wealthy, I'll be in charge, and I'll give you some also. That's a, that's a regular power scheme and strategy the person with the gold rules and he gives the people around him some more gold of his own gold and he gets the most gold. That's the, that's the typical. Yosef doesn't take a penny for himself. We never find that Yosef takes anything from Egypt and he works for them for 80 years and asks for nothing only to make this country incredibly successful, only to give Paro all the power, only to have everyone work for Paro and to have everyone see themselves as owing the country of Egypt, everything to which they then agreed to pay a flat tax of 20%, as the Torah tells us in the end of Parshas Vayigash, that's what they understand is their responsibility to the government because the government made them. That's what Yosef teaches everyone. So why does Yosef ask everyone to circumcise? Very, very important and simple concept. The Talmud tells us that when it comes to this limb, of a man, the genitalia, the Talmud says, whoever starves it becomes satisfied and whoever satisfies it becomes starved. That's what the Talmud says about the sexual libido of a person. If we give into it and we, we try to satisfy it, it's forever desiring more. Whereas if a person starves it, meaning really limits, you know, succumbing, so to speak, to temptation, then a person becomes satisfied. And what the Talmud is really telling us is that a major factor of the human condition is desire for satisfaction. We all want to become satiated. We want to eat till we're full. We want to have all our physical desire satisfied. But the natural consequence of that is that it's never enough. It's never enough. Rabbi Simon Zatal used to joke great line that I, I said after Hishloshin, he used to joke, what do you mean you're finished eating? You mean there's no more food left, right? You're never finished eating until there's no food left. How could you be finished eating if there's still food? And it's the same concept, it's a brilliant insight, right? People don't think of actually what they need and limiting it and not overindulging. They think about indulging until they have no more desire. Well, that just eventually leads to more desire. That's what the Talmud is telling us. What Yosef is teaching the Egyptian people is that there's a reason that famine happens in the world. Famine happens in the world when people lose sight of what it means to be a human being and people only are interested in indulging themselves. When people can only think about indulgence and more and excess and more excess, that's when Hashem sends a message to the world. Listen, I want you to enjoy. I want you to have a great time. I want you to make brothos both before food and after food. I want you to have a spectacular time in this world. We all know Jewish celebration is, you know, tends to revolve around eating. Hashem wants that. There's an important human element of enjoying the physical realm. 
but it cannot be that we just give into that in an indulgent fashion because that only leads to wanting more. It doesn't grow the human dignity, the human spirit, and it doesn't develop the true purpose of a human being. And what Yosef is telling the entire Egyptian culture is that you need to work on your excesses. You need to work on stopping to become so indulgent. Yes, automatically you think whatever is available in the realm of the imp improper, licentious, and immoral, sure, just give in to that. That's what people would have expected from me too. And that's what the scandal was about me, but it's not true. We have the ability as human beings, Jew and non-Jew alike, we have the ability to curb our desires, to teach ourselves discipline, to not only think about indulgence. Now the true Jewish monarch, not only does he curb his desires and not become overindulgent, which is a commandment in the Torah specifically and only for a king, not to have too many horses, not to have too many wives, not to have too much money, because that's the natural momentum of a person in power is to take more power because I have the power to take more power. So a Jewish monarch has to curb that, has to limit that, has to understand that he needs to be disciplined and measured. But moreover, when it comes to the non-Jewish world, the Jewish monarch has to teach that a human being's purpose in this world is not just to serve themselves. That's not the goal. And in fact, the Jewish king and a Yosef king he works to help the world enjoy, and he works to help the world succeed. But at the same time, he teaches them that there needs to be an understanding of the true dignity and value of a human being. And it's not about becoming an indulgent, narcissistic, animalistic human being. The goal is to become a human being of dignity and a human being who can look outside themselves and a human being who can be benevolent and has to be typified and the role model has to be the Jewish king. And if you think about it, Paro could have been overthrown by Yosef many times in his 80 year career. He was in charge of everything. You don't think it would have been easy for Yosef to say, uh, Paro, you're out, you know, you don't do anything for the country anyways and have the total confidence of the people behind him. I mean, you know, how long would it take people to renounce Paro if Yosef just declared himself as the new absolute king of Egypt? It would have been very easy for Yosef to do that. But Yosef is teaching the entire world what the truth is about a human being and what the truth about government needs to be. So our role in secular government needs to be to teach the world that there is God, not that they have to say Shema, not that they have to, you know, do all the things that, uh, you know, a Jew does, but they have to know the truth that God exists and that the goal of a human being is not to be a power grabbing, narcissistic and entitled and covetous person. That's not the goal. The goal is to actually help other people to their success. And you can give other people you can be happy for other people. You can work for other people to help them be successful, as Yosef represents in every position of power in which he is, in, into which he is thrust. Now, it's so interesting that Hanukkah is the one mitzvah that we do that is supposed to be public, and we're happy for the non-Jewish people to see the public demonstration of us burning a candle. Now, of course, if it's dangerous, we put it inside, right? If the non-Jews are in the moment against Jews and Judaism, so we don't have an obligation to put it in front of them, then we just publicize it for ourselves. But when that's not the case, when in fact there is peace and harmony and Jewish people are able to live freely, we publicize it for the entire world to see. Why? Because the essential lesson that we need to teach the world in our of overcoming Greek ideology is that the difference between darkness and light is the difference between a world that sees life as a miracle and that miracles flourish and always can and will happen, or there's no such thing as a miracle and everything is just nature and there is no concept of a divine influence or intervention in the world. And the real difference 
between having a quote unquote abundance mentality or a scarcity mentality, which is what our Parsha is all about, is one thing. Is there a God at the helm or not? Because if there's no God at the helm, who says that there is an abundance and more? Who says? It seems that we live in a physical limited universe. So who says that there's more than enough for everyone? Just because we want to believe that? <clears throat> Just because you know it'll help us feel less jealous of people that have when we don't have? It's either true philosophically or it's not true philosophically. And the answer is it is true philosophically, but only when people are willing to recognize that there is a God and God wants there to be an abundance for everyone. God doesn't want anyone to have a scarcity mentality and power grab and take all of the resources of the world for themselves or for their country. God wants that everybody should be trying to give to everybody because God is in charge and God will make sure that there is enough and more than enough and more than enough for everyone and more and more and more. And that's only when there's a God at the helm. And so I'm suggesting that in a real sense, the light of Hanukkah that was shining to the world is an abundance mentality. It's that miracles happen, things beyond our limited brains and capacities, and even what seems to be the limited resources of the world. It's not true. There are resources beyond the resources that we see. We just don't necessarily know how to access them, but God teaches us. And you know, many inventions, et cetera, are God-inspired and so on. And that's a major lesson of Hanukkah for the entire world but also it teaches us how the world can be finally comfortable with a Jew. The Jew is not here to take charge, control. The Jew is not here to use his abilities to, God forbid, Jew other people. He's here to empower and to make it an abundant world for everyone. But it's only the Jew that really trusts in Hashem, that really when he's in a position of power, doesn't take advantage of it, doesn't take money for himself, doesn't take physical pleasures for himself, isn't looking to try to take anything away from anyone. It's only that kind of Jew that actually brings abundance to the world. And it's only that kind of Jew that the world will put in trusted positions of power so that we can truly provide an abundance for the entire world, which is what Yosef does. And he is the longest ruler in Tanakh of an 80 year reign because he successfully helps and convinces the entire world of his trustworthiness, but the end story message of Yosef is that it's all from Hashem. The interpretations are from Hashem. What Hashem wants us to do, he's telling us, but what does he want us to do? Save food so that everybody will have more than enough, even in a time of famine. And that builds the trust with Yosef for the long term, and therefore Yosef is in charge until only the later Paro decides to reject Yosef more than that at another time. So Ezra Hashem, I think if we really understand this message of Hanukkah, that we're bringing the light to the world, that there is not only a God, but therefore there's a tremendous abundance in the world. The tiny amount can last as much as God wants it to last. Uh, we have an opportunity to really reshape people's understanding of what it means to have a God-centric universe and why there really should be an abundance mentality, and then it actually comes true. And hopefully that will be the case. And just like Hashem helped us in those days at this time, by you should also be Zoha to see this message of Hanukkah spread and see the miracles of, of Hashem's salvation and bringing peace for our people and for the entire mankind in that merit. Questions or comments? Thanks, Akiva. See you next week. Yes, may I Pleasure, say everyone. something, Akiva? Oh, yes. Yes, so you just... Um, you just um, helped me understand the point I made with you, I think a year or two ago, about that really the punishment of Yosef was due to the fact that he ignored the Sarah Ophim. As, yeah, and so comes out when you're saying you're answering that question, that that was the problem by virtue of the fact that Yosef did not take into consideration the feelings of the Sarah Ophim showed that he still had to work on himself to be not to become you know self-centered to get rid of that and be able to be to feel for somebody else completely that's the, the point you're making. needed to learn that you're saying no no he needed to learn that because in the ah. partial, right he he totally ignored if you everybody doesn't notice that 
but he totally ignored the Sarofim. In other words, if you'd read the Parsha on your own, you would never do something like that. Turn to a guy, what's uh, my dream? Oh, 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 you? Oh, you're going to drop dead in three days. Goodbye. So it, it, you see that your point, his sensitivity that he had to be focused and not being self-centered had not been accomplished yet. And it took him another two years to become the Yosef that you're describing in this year. Yeah, that, that makes sense. It makes sense what you're saying. Yeah. Sharp kochacha. I want to think about it more. Appreciate it. Excellent. Anyone else? Yes, Frida. Um, thank you, Rabbi. Um, I, I did very much enjoy and a lot to think about. Um, I'm trying to unpack it. Uh, I, I am working with some teens on a special project. Um, and the, the big thing is, what is a Jew? And people don't understand us is their fear based on what's going on in the world. And I think you hit on a few topics here. Um, the messaging of what Hanukkah is and what we should look like. So given we live in a world of social media and there's, you know, the messaging going out of those that, you know, we want money to help everybody, you know, in, in a perfect world, we, you're, you're telling us that pe the, the negative players whose names are Jewish and millions of times over are the worst criminals of all dealing with the way we see money is a idea you identify in this Parsha as to what is really the messaging here and what we would want for a Jew, true Jew. And the other thing is, we it's easy for us to, I don't know if you'll see, and I like the second part of the you know, the thought is connecting the dots. We're looking at those that are secular and what they do, but then coming in my mind to those within our own observant community who the idea of indulgence has become way over the top. <laughs> the messaging we're putting out in the community of the world about the way people don't want to invite us to hotels anymore, Dom Young Tovin, because the messaging we have is that it's an entitlement, and this is not the secular part of the community. So I'm trying to grapple with what you have just taught us, what the message that I want to say to young people would be in terms of them, but also how we ourselves, you know, how we go, you know, work towards the goal of sending the message of Hanukkah is about. I think it's a great point. Uh, I totally agree that it's a huge, it's, in my mind, it's the biggest problem in all segments of Jewish society today is indulgence and entitlement. In my mind, it is the biggest uh, glaring deficiency that we have. And a very simple idea is for people to imagine putting a budget of a family vacation uh, of any length of time, that's at least, at least 50% less than last vacation, <laughs> right? I could put a dollar amount, but instead I think a percentage amount is better. Think of taking a family vacation next time around that costs 50% less than the last one you took and do that a couple times. You will teach your children amazing things and yourselves amazing things about life what's important and how to really enjoy time together it's such a much better experience without a doubt rabbi i guess what i'm saying is i need you know you know those of you on the share know me my questions are always like i want hands-on tools i'm looking for walk as soon as we get off the call to I'm go getting, out, I, figure right. out what i can do no absolutely and I'm suggesting this as a suggestion to give people a challenge. Can you spend 50% less as a family on your next vacation than you did on the one that you just took? Or, you know, if the one you just took wasn't anything, you know, the last special vacation you took. I'm not even saying don't go on vacation, right? Not everybody, you know, it didn't used to be a thing that everybody always went on vacation every vacation. <laughs> that didn't used to be a thing. Now it's Hanukkah and winter and summer and spring and and again and again and again, face off and circus, and, right? Every single thing, turn around, it's another reason to spend lots and lots of money on a vacation. So I recommend that as a very practical thing. Okay, but then the other part about the, sec the uh, social media and the image of Jews who seem to be the worst criminals when it comes to absorbing money for themselves and doing all the things that are the opposite of what is good for humanity and becoming so public, uh, any thoughts on that? Yeah, I, I really think it starts with this. You know, we need to, to uh, really, that, that, in other words, first of all, it's for sure not 
mostly Jews. It's just that Jews are most publicized because this is why the news cycle was nine years in Mitzrayim. It's their biggest fear. The most talented, capable, you know, people will take everything for themselves. So it's just, it's, it's the biggest fear, but, you know, thank God, we all know that we have the, the most philanthropy by far of any, you know, subculture in the world, True. right? By subculture, I mean less than, you know, huge, huge, huge numbers, uh, people of culture. So the, the point is that, that we need to start with our own character development if we want to make a different impression on the world. Uh, I'm not so worried about, you know, doing a chesed drive and saying to people, look how interested we are in others. I want to work on our own self-indulgence. And then I think uh, those things would, would, would naturally follow. And I, I don't need to make a public display because it's not even going to help because you're still going to have the few Jews because we're, we're not fixing the problem at all. You have to fix the problem. And I, I would strongly recommend um, all Jews to really, really consider spending 50% less. I'm not even mentioning the chasana and the blah, 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 blah. I'm not even, not even mentioning that, right? It, it, it's a great benefit to everyone. And, and the pressure also, you know, we, we, we undergo so much psychological damage and psychosis by the pressure we put under, ourselves under and our next generation puts themselves under uh, to earn that money, to take those things. It's just, it's, it's horrible. In, in many ways, we're just, we're, we're literally just, uh, it's worse than shooting ourselves in the foot. We're, 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 we're fundamentally um, making ourselves unhealthy. Thank you, Rabbi. Happy to listen to anyone else. Questions there is or... a question in the chat box, I believe. Oh, okay, thank you. Ah, great question, uh, Sandra. I don't know, I would imagine not. That's a great question. Uh, Sandra is asking if Hiro circumcised himself as well. Presumably, um, Yosef did not impose that on Pyro or ask him to do it, presumably, but I don't know the answer. Presumably not. Thank you. Sure. Um, Rabbi, is a Roshi Yeshiva uh, teaching following our class? You know what? Give me one second, because I know that my parents attended um, uh, Simcha today, so just give me one second, I'll try to find out. Atlanta. I'm going to suggest no. Okay. Yeah, I, I'm thinking no, out loud and just, you know, the class is over, but I'm thinking out loud. Yeah. Imagine it. Imagine a full page ad in major newspapers putting out in the best marketing way for people to consider doing what you just suggested in terms of the next vacation, but do it in a way that's very, you know, cool and right and just put it as a challenge and pl begin planting the seeds of how the world would change. Rabbi, I love the idea. I just need somebody who's smarter than I am to figure out Tell that to all the people that are employed in those businesses to stop. That's a little I bit say, You're making it too hard, Rabbi. Uh, <laughs> That's a bigger gonna be, challenge. You're going to make, you're going to disemploy a lot of people. Yeah. We have a, another, somebody raising their hand. Sylvia, do you want to say something or somebody else? Yeah. Um, hello? Yes. Yeah, I was wondering, Rabbi, um, yeah, I'm, I'm just listening. I'm not, you know, I don't get a good picture, right? So anyway, I just called it. So I was wondering, so we said that, you know, Yosef had the Egyptians circumcise themselves. Did we say what the Tuelus was? Why he, he wanted to do that? Uh, so what I'm saying, that the benefit is, is that they were very immoral, and, and licentious society. And they just naturally did whatever they felt like doing in that arena. And by circumcising, uh, the, to the, the Yosef's intention is to teach them that they have to learn to curb their desires at least a little oh, bit. Okay. My Maimonides Rambam says, my father always quotes that uh, a person who's circumcised actually has a less pleasurable experience because he's circumcised. Maimonides actually okay. says, yeah, that was, hey, by the got, way, Alex, that bum Alex Ginsburg, uh, that famous, uh, infamous guy, 
wanted to ban circumcision in America because of that. Oh, wow. Very cool. Um, yes, Alan, Mrs. Kent, Alan gets you can unmute Alan. Mrs. Kent up. Okay. Um, to Rabbi, I don't remember your name's point about um, limiting the employment of the people who do the programs. Uh -huh. I, I'm suggesting that there is room for everybody I know that there was a time when our family had been through a horrendous few months and we just literally had to take everybody and go to one of those programs. And we, can you hear me? Yes. Okay. Okay. And, um, and it act literally saved the lives of, 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 you know, the people that literally had been through what they had been through, but our children made the observation that having to get dressed up and walk a half hour to every single meal was not pleasurable. And the next time we went on vacation, it cost much less than 50% less because we went to an Airbnb and it was just so much more enjoyable. Now to the point, Rabbi, what's, what's the rabbi's not name? Demon. Not demon. I'm sorry? Not demon. Okay, I, I, you're a little bit unclear, and I'm a little bit unclear. But anyway, to his point, there are all manner of ways to employ people, and a concern that most from people have is, oh, I could get one of these Airbnb places, but what will I eat? That's my concern, because I'm very big on eating. There are people that do this specifically. They help people figure things out. These things, you know, for people who don't want to get dressed up three times a day and, you know, and I, I will tell you that these vacations work out, you know, they're more cost effective, they're better, they, uh, my particular family enjoys it more. It's, to me, it's more wholesome. Everybody eats food that they wind up cooking themselves. Um, if, if it becomes somehow, like Frida said, you know, better minds than mine can, um, get the message out. I'm always thinking about better minds in mind because they're very limited things that my mind is good at. Um, Not true. Okay, okay. But then, it, but it also works in other directions because recently we had a joint birthday party that was just really a backyard party with lots of karaoke and barbecue and, and homemade salads. And people who don't party that way found their way there. Their kids didn't want to leave and they, they, it was like something that they had never experienced and they absolutely loved. But my daughter in San Francisco, who does a lot of this for people, she finds that people are so concerned, feel have no self-confidence about doing this. They don't have a clue. And um, if there's some way to get the word out that you really have more talent than you think, you're really more entertaining than you think. You're really more able than you think. Your kids really enjoy your company and your grandkids adore your company so much. You know, when I tell my kids, my grandkids, do you want to play in my closet or go to Walt Disney? It's like, why would I want to go to Walt Disney? 